hey, I know on a day like today, uh, there's a lot of emotion and feeling in the room, and uh, if you didn't know, Brother Daryl is gone. He uh, is semi-retired as of last weekend, and uh, he's not on his front pew. He's not here in the pulpit, and it, it feels a little strange. I don't know about for you, but it does for me, for sure. Uh, it's a gap. It's it's a whole we're all experiencing. I think it's been just a weird week for me. I don't know how to talk to my dad anymore. Uh, it's kind of strange. Like We've talked about church and stuff for seven years, and now I don't want to talk about it, and I need to, but I want to, but I can't, you know, so anyway, it's a weird day, but at today, as, as mentioned, we will meet after the service, and we will elect a committee that will begin the process of finding uh, our next senior pastor, but I just want to say, in the meantime, God has blessed our church. Uh, we have a number of <laughs> godly, capable leaders. We have 15 amazing godly deacons who serve. Um, we have staff and church staff and lay ministry directors and members that are all passionate about what we're doing. Uh, and as much as my dad would appreciate feeling needed, uh, we're going to be okay. Uh, we're going to be okay. We're going to move forward together, and, and that's what we have to do. Uh, and we're going to continue what God has done uh, here in our church and the mission that he's given us. Uh, and yeah, it feels different, uh, but it's okay. God has given us great gifts of leaders and uh, all kinds of things. And so today my job is to preach the word. And so that's what I'm raring to do. So let's go. Uh, today we're going to be in the book of Ephesians. We're going to start uh, in the book of Ephesians, the New Testament letters. So let me uh, read it. But before we do that, let me pray. God, I pray this morning um, that you would speak clearly through your word. God, not just through me, but I pray that you would help me to explain it clearly as I ought to, to, to preach it boldly as I ought to. God, I pray that it would make sense. God, your Holy Spirit would, um, would teach us this morning, and it would, it would sink deep into our hearts. It wouldn't just be head knowledge, but God, it would be heart knowledge. God, I pray that you would um, send your word out, let it accomplish the purpose that it is sent for, and be with us this morning. God, we love you. We pray all this in your son's name. Amen. All right, Ephesians chapter 1, let's read it, 1 through 14. It says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, we're sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. 
Let's talk a little bit about context here. Uh, Ephesians is an incredible letter that was written from Paul to a church that was in Ephesus. That's why it's called Ephesians. That's in western Turkey. If Brother Daryl was here, he would show a map, but we're not. It's one of my favorite books. It's one of my favorite letters. Um, It does an incredible job of pointing us to all that God has done in the gospel and what he has done to, to save us. And it also shows us how to live. The first half of the book is going to be about what the gospel is and what he has done for us, and the last half is going to be how do we live this out. It's really practical and, and down to earth. Paul had spent about two and a half years in this place uh, called Ephesus, uh, and he had taught. He went as a missionary, and he went to, to teach and preach and share the gospel and plant a church. And he was there about two and a half years, and he had an amazing impact Uh, amazing gospel impact. This place was totally changed by Paul's work there. Acts 19.10 says that that this went on for two years, him preaching the gospel. It went on for two years so that all the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. I don't know if that could be said about Huntington, Texas, that all the the residents of, of Angelina County had heard the word of the Lord, but what could be said at the end of Paul's time in Ephesus was that Man, he had done it all. He had shared the gospel in, in the synagogue, in the hall of Tyrannus, in home to home. And his gospel work had changed so many lives. Acts 19 continues in verse 18. It says, Many of those who believed, they came and openly confessed what they had done. And a number who had practiced sorcery brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly. And when they calculated the value of the scrolls, the total came to 50,000 silver coins or drachmas. In this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. What Paul had done there had caused an economic revolution, had caused all kinds of change. 50,000 silver coins or drachmas or whatever yours says was the equivalent of a day's wage. So if you just throw a number on it, you're talking about millions of dollars. These people were giving up their sorcery, giving up their past, giving up all of everything to follow Jesus. It was drastically changing this place. There was this massive temple to this God called Artemis, and these silversmiths couldn't make money any longer. And what do you think happened, right? If people aren't making money, they get mad. And so what happened to Paul is he, there was a riot. He was forced out of the city because his gospel work there had changed everything for them. And so Paul was forced to leave. He came back later, one time we know, on his way to Jerusalem and where he's arrested and he's sent to Rome as a prisoner and where he's probably going to die. And in Rome, he writes back a letter, this letter, to the Ephesian church to remind them of what the gospel is, to remind them how to live it out. And Paul, let's start in verse 1. Here's what he says. He says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul calls himself an apostle. Uh, and an apostle just generally means someone who is specially chosen or, or sent to teach, to, to do a mission. They're sent out. But specifically in his context, he means way more than just like, hey, I was sent for this purpose. He's calling himself an apostle. He's one of the eyewitnesses to Jesus. He's one of those who, is, who has been commissioned to proclaim the gospel to the ends of the earth. And Paul had been given this commission to give it to the Gentiles, the non-Jews. 
And so he's saying, I am teaching you the gospel. And so he writes this letter, and it says, to the saints who are in Ephesus. Now, if you come from a Catholic background, when you hear that word, you think of something very different than what Paul means here. Saints are not venerated, uh, you know, earthly figures that may or may not have performed a miracle. That's not what he means. He means holy people, those who are set apart, those who are, have been saved and made holy by the blood of Jesus. And so Paul is writing to believers. He's writing to the church. And we know this because he says, that, that I'm writing to those saints who are in Ephesus who are faithful in Christ Jesus, or yours may say who have faith in Christ Jesus. So he's writing to believers. He's writing to believers. This is what it takes to be a saint. It doesn't take a miracle. It doesn't take, you know, recognition by the Pope. What it takes to be a saint is to believe in the gospel, to believe in Jesus Christ to save you. And he's the one who makes us holy. He's the one who makes us set apart. And then Paul gives this greeting. Uh, this was a common greeting for Paul, if you read many of his letters. Um, he says, grace to you and peace from God our Father. That'd be like saying, hey, hope you and your family are doing well, right? That may be how we greet, or what's up, brah, or whatever your generation is, right? This is a common greeting them, but, but, but it's way more than just a, what's up, brah, right? This is deep. This is serious, because he is, he is putting an umbrella over what he's about to say. He's saying way more than just, hey, hope you're doing well. He says, grace to you and peace. These are two main ways to describe the gospel, because the gospel is a gospel of grace. It's not a gospel of works. It's a gospel of grace. Grace means a gift, unmerited favor. It means something that we get that we don't deserve. This is the gospel, and this is what he's going to describe in this book, that we're never going to earn it, we're never going to deserve it, but God is graciously giving it to us, right? It's a gospel of grace, but it's also a gospel of peace. Peace, uh, God created us good, right, in the beginning. Think about sin, Adam and Eve, us, every single one of us, God created us good, but our sin, when we chose sin, it alienated us from God. It put separation between us and God. But way more than that, it created hostility between us and God. Because we said, you're not the king of the universe that I'm, I'm going to follow. We openly rejected him, and we chose to be his enemies. And so the gospel is a gospel of peace, because God took us from being enemies to, as we're going to see, be sons and daughters and friends. Where there was hostility, he created peace. It's a gospel of grace, and it's a gospel of peace. And this is what Paul's going to lay out in this book, and I'm calling it gospel people, because these are the three things that it does. One, it tells us what the gospel is, the first three chapters. Just, this is what God has done for you. This is all that God has accomplished. And then second, chapters four through six, he lays out, here's how you live that out. Here's how it applies to marriage. Here's how it applies to friendship. Here's how it applies in all sorts of areas. How do we live out the gospel? But the whole umbrella over the whole thing is that God is creating a people. God's not creating gospel persons. He's not creating Lone Ranger Christians who just do their own thing and live on their own, separated from the people of God. No, God is creating a gospel people. And so that's what we're going to see in this book. Look at verse 3. Look at verse 3, our passage for today. 
It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Um, we, don't, we use this language of blessed in a lot of ways in our culture. How many people have a sign in their house that say blessed on it somewhere? That's not exactly what Paul means here. Uh, what he is, you, this language is blessed be God or blessed be God, if you, certain generation, right? And he is praising God. He is worshiping God. He is, this is a prayer of praise and worship, right? And he's saying blessed be God. And he's going to lay out all that God has blessed us with, right? He's going to say blessed be God who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. This really probably makes more sense if we say, who has blessed us in Christ with every blessing of the Spirit. Because when we say spiritual, I think we, we think of like mystical or uh, you know, some sort of feeling. That was a really spiritual service or whatever. That's not what he means at all. He's not talking about feelings or circumstances. He's talking about a Trinitarian view of the gospel. Blessed be God the Father, the Lord of our Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every blessing of the Spirit, right? All three are at work here in our salvation, in the gospel. And so he's communicating so much more that our blessing is not this, like, you know, we say we were blessed because somebody bought our meal at a restaurant or, or uh, we got some money that maybe we didn't think we were going to get or, you know, we got to... We didn't get stuck in traffic. That's a blessing to us. But, but he's communicating so much more. And he's going to elaborate on what that blessing is. He's going to spend this long sentence. It's one sentence in the original. And he's going to give all these word pictures, all these descriptions of what God has done for us to bless us. All that God has done for us to bless us. And it has very little to do with our earthly material experience. It has a lot to do with our spiritual experience in the spirit experience. And he's gonna lay out our past blessing of being chosen. He's gonna lay out our present blessing of being adopted and forgiven. And he's gonna lay out our future blessing of being united with Christ. He's gonna use these word pictures to describe what God has done for us. So let's look at them. Verse four. Verse four, he says, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. He says that we have been chosen to be holy and blameless. We have been chosen. Yours, yours may say elected. Uh, and <laughs> there's been a lot of conversation in church history over this. And we're not, gonna, we're not even going to delve into it, right? There's a whole lot of conversation about, are we, are we choosing? Is God choosing? Is God sovereign? Are we human will? I'm not trying to get lost in those weeds today because I want you to see the bigger picture. And the bigger picture is, is this, that we have been chosen. Like, God chose us. I don't want you to lose that. If you are in Christ, if you have been saved, if you have been reconciled with God, God chose you. He picked you. He wanted you. He loved you, right? He didn't leave you on the side. He didn't go, uh, that's a lost cause. He didn't, he didn't let this slide. No, he chose us. He set his love on us. This is what God has done all along. He chose Abraham when he was nothing. He chose the people of Israel when they were nothing, and he's choosing the people today, and we're nothing great, right? If we're in Christ, the only thing we have going for us is that, right? But God is in the picture of being chosen. 
right? This is not middle school uh, PE, right? In middle school PE, anybody remember those terrible, wonderful days? If we're picking a basketball team, Peyton, I'm, go- I'm picking the tallest dude first, right? Picking the most athletic dude next, and then I'm picking a bruiser third, right? I'm, I'm picking based on merit, because I want to win. That's not how God chose us. He didn't look at us and go, wow, he brings a lot to the table. Wow, he's really good. No, he looks at us and he chooses us in grace, unmerited favor. This is what God has done. And he's chosen us, not so that we get this badge, so that we get to boast how we're chosen and all this stuff. No, he says we were chosen to be holy and blameless before him. It's all by grace. That's the first picture we see in this passage, is that God has chosen. And I don't know what that word makes you think, but I want you to see the beauty of it. That God loved you enough and he chose you. Not because of you, not because of how great you were, but because he loved you. The second, the second picture starts in verse 5. It says this in 5 and 6. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. It says, in love he predestined us for adoption as sons. So first, let's note this. It is love that motivates God to action. It is love. It is not duty. It is not obligation. It is not responsibility. It's not like, well, I didn't really want to choose you, Shane, but I kind of had to. You were the last pick, right? That's not it at all. No, it says, in love he predestined, which is another word for choose. He chose to adopt us. It is love that moves God to action. It is love that moves God to action in the gospel. And his love moved him to adopt, to adopt us as sons. Now, adoption is this one of the most beautiful pictures of what God has done for us in salvation. He has adopted us. He has voluntarily voluntarily chosen to bring us into his family so that we get all the rights and benefits and privileges of being a part of his family. We've moved from an old family that whatever the situation was to a new family. And now many of you have been touched by adoption. I mean, there's a lot of stories, whether you or you've adopted or you, you, whatever, right? You, You see the beauty of this when you see someone adopt. It's love that motivates them to do this. Now, adoption was this this term to signify somebody moving from one family to another. But it's not just like, like, you know, you know the people that are like kind of family, but not exactly blood family that you invite to Christmas and holidays. Anybody, Anybody know what I'm talking about? Yes? That's not what he's saying. He's not like, hey, you're kind of fringe family. We're gonna pseudo call you family. But this is adoption as sons which carries a lot more weight than just like, hey, you're invited to Christmas dinner. This is, you're included as an heir. You get the same inheritance as the son of God. That's what he's saying. This is an amazing picture because what God has done is he's, we were enemies of God. We were far from God. We had rejected God. And he looked at us. Not only did he give us grace and put peace in there and kind of make us on friendly terms. No, he said, I want you in my family. I want you to be an heir with Christ. He, this is massive. This is massive good news. 
that God has taken us who were his enemies and he has made us sons through adoption. He's not only just given us personhood and dignity, but he's given us the keys to the kingdom. And it says this in verse 6, that all of this is to the praise of his glorious grace. This is all to the praise of his glorious grace. This phrase is going to be repeated three different times in this one sentence. Because what he is saying is when we understand this, when we understand the good news of the gospel, it moves us to worship. It moves us to praise him. This is not like standing up during a song. This is not, you know, repeated phrases. And this is real, heartfelt, genuine praise that, man, God, I don't deserve that. I don't. You know me and you know my heart and yet you love me anyway. This is, this is genuine, heartfelt worship and praise. Gospel people are worshiping people because they understand all that God has done for them. So we've seen this, being chosen. We've seen being adopted. Look at verse 7. Verse 7. It says, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace. It says, in him, we have redemption through his blood. This, this phrase, in him, is going to be repeated over and over as well. And it means in Christ. The only way we have adoption or choosing or redemption is if we are in Christ. In him, we have redemption. This is the heart of the gospel, redemption. Redemption is not like redeeming a coupon at the store, um, is maybe how we use it, or returning in, something like that. Redemption is this. Redemption is the freedom that is purchased by a payment, by a ransom payment. It's the freedom that is purchased by a ransom payment. Think about a hostage situation, whether that's cyber or like real bodily human hostages, right? Somebody takes something and they demand payment in order to set them free, Right? That's, that's what redemption is. It's paying that price so that something can be set free. It could refer to purchasing a slave's freedom. That something that was enslaved or, or owned by someone else was the price was paid to purchase their freedom. This is the same language God uses in the Old Testament in, in Exodus. That they were redeemed from Israel. They were slaves in Israel and he purchased their freedom to bring them out of that slavery into freedom. And so what Paul, what Paul is saying is that we as gospel believing people, we are now free from our slavery. And we're free from our evil captors because of the ransom payment that Jesus paid by his blood. He purchased our freedom. He bought our salvation. He asked what the price was, and the price was his life, and he said, I'll pay it, and he did. What, we were slaves to our sin, an evil master that dominated us, controlled us, held us captive, and God looked down in love, and he not only brought us in as sons, it says that he redeemed us, he paid the price to rescue us from that slavery. Right, what good news, we don't have to be slaves anymore, we don't have to be uh, entangled with sin anymore. God can set us free. God can save us fully. And it says that in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. The record of wrongs that stood against us, the, the, the rap sheet that we had because of our sin against God is, is, is wadded up, 
It's thrown away. It's forgiven. It's wiped clean. It's burned. It's gone. It's no more. It's forgotten. He says that we have been forgiven. Our past is no more. It's not remembered or held against us. We are set free. We've been given a clean slate because of what Jesus did in paying the price for our redemption on the cross. And he says this is according to the riches of his grace. It's all by grace. We don't deserve it. We don't earn it. We don't, we don't prove our word to God. And he goes, all right, I'm adopting that one because I like how he's behaving. Hey, I want that one because she brings a lot to the table. No, it's all by grace. This is the gospel. Look at verse 8. Verse 8, it says, which he lavished on us. Look, I love that language. It says, the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us. This is abundance, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. The question is this today, because this is all sounding really good, right? God's choosing us, God's forgiving us, God's redeeming us, but who is us? Who is it? Is it everything? Is it everyone of all time? Do we just passively, God, Jesus did this on the cross, and we just all get to participate in it, and God's going to save everybody in the end. That is not what Scripture says. How do we come to participate in this redemption, in this adoption, in this freedom? What he's going to say here in this passage and, and in Romans 10 and in other places is that it is through knowledge and belief. We have to hear and understand the gospel in order to believe in him. And if we are not in him, then we are not going to be in heaven with God forever. There is no other way. He says this has been his plan all along, that he has made known to us this mystery. Um, I don't know how many of you are blind like me, right? But this, this idea of making known to us a mystery is, is like, man, I, I literally can't see anybody's face. I couldn't, I couldn't tell you who was sitting right there. I really can't tell who that is. Oh, Ashley, okay. Um, that's, that's the idea here, is that we've been looking at our life all along, and it's not made sense. I can't, I can't make out much of anything right now. But when, when God gives us the knowledge of the gospel, it's like, it's like putting on glasses for the first time and seeing clearly. It's like, it's like, uh, like a math problem. How many of you are, are bad at math in the room? Just own it. All right, good. How many of you are good at math in the room? Okay. How many of you are good at math and try to explain math to someone that's bad at math? <laughs> you know what that's like? It's impossible, right? Because, look, just add three to four and then do this, right? No matter how many times I try to explain it, it doesn't make sense. But then one day what happens? It clicks. And it makes sense. It's like putting on glasses. It's like, it's like understanding, oh, oh, I add three to four. Okay, I get it, right? That's what he's saying here. There has to come a point in our life. We, you can hear the gospel a thousand times. You can understand Jesus and resurrection and all the facts. But one day it has to make sense. One day it has to sink in. One day God has to flip a switch for you to really understand it. 
And he says, when that happens, we are going to be united with him. This has been God's plan all along. Because our main problem is that we are separated from God, but he has made a way, and he is making a way for us to be united with him, brought back into relationship with him. Let's keep reading. I got way more content than we got time for. Look at verse 11, and we'll skip to, we'll read all the way to the end. 11, in him we have obtained an inheritance. This is like, like sons, remember that language that we, we, not, we are heirs. We are going to receive an inheritance because he's made us sons. Having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. So that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. Look at 13. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. He says, when you heard the word of truth and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our salvation until we acquire possession of it. It takes hearing the gospel and it takes believing in him in order to be saved. That is clear here, that's clear in Romans, that's clear in a lot of places. There is no passive experience of salvation where you don't really know. No, we must hear and believe the gospel. And he says that once we do that, we are sealed with the Holy Spirit. God's presence comes to, to live inside of us. And that is an is a, a amazing experience, right? But it is a small foretaste of all that we will experience one day. And he says it this way, he, the Holy Spirit is the guarantee. This is, this is earnest money for all the realtors in the room. This is a down payment on a future massive payment that will one day be paid, right? This is a small piece to say, no, I'm in, right? And God gives us the Holy Spirit as a guarantee, as, as a earnest money, as, as a partial payment of the future fuller reality that we will one day experience being united with God forever in perfect relationship. And he says all of this is to the praise of his glory. All of this is to the praise of his glory. Or in other places he says to the praise of his glorious grace. This passage, what Paul is writing to the Ephesians, he's, he's writing it to us, to Christians to remind us of the gospel so that we will worship God. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Gospel people are worshiping people. It's real, genuine, heartfelt worship because they know the God who saved them and all that he has done. I hope reading this today, I hope you putting some language and some pictures and some words of what God has done for you. He's chosen you. He's adopted you. He's saved you. He's forgiven you. He's uniting you. He's reconciling. There's so many word pictures, and this is what God has done for us who are believers, who are gospel people. This is what God is doing so that we would worship and honor and praise him in all things. And so as we close, let me say this. If you don't believe in here, if you're not a Christian, you're checking this out, not real sure. Maybe you've been around church a lot. Maybe you think you're part of the saints. <laughs> you're a member of a life group or whatever. Do you know Jesus? Do you really know him? Has it clicked? Do you really understand and believe the gospel is your only hope in him? 
Because if it is, then great, you're a son and daughter of the king of the universe waiting on your inheritance that he will give one day. But if you don't know, if you're in this middle ground of like, I, I think this might be true or I don't really know, and you've heard the gospel today, you've heard the good news that Jesus died to save you, to rescue us from our sin. All you have to do today to be saved is place your faith in him. It's to believe fully in him. That's it. You don't have to walk an aisle. You don't have to talk to a preacher necessarily. You don't have to cry. You don't have to do anything. Scripture doesn't say any of that. He says it's by grace, through faith. Put your faith in Jesus today if you don't know where you're going to spend eternity. I love being at uh, Steve's funeral this week because he proclaimed that message a lot. The only way to be saved is to put your faith in Jesus. That's it. And he did that with everyone. <laughs> he was hard-headed, I think, before that, before he was saved. And God saved him. He was in a hole on a job site in Palestine, Texas, and God saved him. You can be in a hole right here in your pew or at home or tonight. But if you don't know Jesus, if you don't have a, have a salvation experience, place your faith in him. Believe the gospel. God will save you. Believers in the room, Paul writes this so that we worship, so that we praise God for all that he's done. And so we're going to do that to finish. We're going to sing a song of, of worship. Um, let me pray for us. God, thank you for the good news of the gospel this morning, God. And I pray that, that those who have heard it, God, I pray that it would click. I pray that it would make sense. I pray that it would sink down deep into their bones, God, and they would know they have no hope outside of you. God, I pray for us who are in Christ, who have experienced salvation and adoption and forgiveness and unification and all those, all those pictures. God, I pray that we would be a worshiping people, praising God for his marvelous grace and all that he has done to save us. God, I pray that you would be with us as a church. I pray that you would guide us and direct us in all things. We love you. We pray all this in your son's name. Amen.